This morning, as you guys may or may not know, we're beginning our new sermon series on the book of Esther. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Esther. Esther's in the Old Testament. The book of Esther is before Psalms, and right before Psalms is Job. Right before Job is Esther. That's kind of how I find it. But open to Esther chapter 1. We'll read that, and then our, our, our kids will be dismissed here in a moment. <clears throat> Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no constriction, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. 
causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media will have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, Crossroads class is dismissed. So here on my left, and then, uh, uh, sorry, Children's Church, I mean, and then Crossroads here on the right. For me, for you, the left. <clears throat> and as they go on, make their way out, children, enjoy your time in Children's Church and Crossroads. Uh, we will be focusing here on the book itself, the book of Esther, which is a rather remarkable book for a couple of reasons. The most remarkable is it makes no mention of God. Here's a book in our Bibles, and it has no mention of God whatsoever. No name of God is ever given. No direct reference to God or the divine is ever mentioned. There's not even a reference to something uh, that could be a, a circumlocution like heaven itself or the throne room of, of heaven or the temple. There's no reference to the divine at all. But there may be a few oblique references, indirect, hidden. One example is on the screen from a crucial point in Esther's narrative. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, we read uh, Mordecai, Esther's older cousin and adoptive parent, is advising her, pleading with her to, uh, to intercede on behalf of the, Jew, the Jewish nation, the whole Jewish people in the, under the Persian Empire who are in danger of a massive holocaust because of one Haman who is enraged by Mordecai and wants to obliterate not just Mordecai but all of his people. And he comes to Esther and asks for her to find audience with the king and to plead on behalf of the lives of her people. But she protests and says I, that would break the law of the king because the, there's a law that says you do not enter the royal court unless you've been summoned. And if you do so on pains of death, unless for some reason the emperor happens to find favor with you and grants you a hearing, but it's a roll of the dice. So she says that, 
And here is Mordecai's response. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Spoken in the passive. It will rise. There will be salvation for the Jews somehow, somewhere. But you and your father's house will perish. And then further, who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows, Esther, whether or not you have been placed fortuitously in this situation for this very hour. An oblique reference to divine providence, as we confessed it here this morning, that behind the scenes, hidden, is the invisible hand of God to redeem, to rescue, to appoint Esther in a position of power for this very moment. But no reference is made. No reference is made. This is, students of the Bible refer to what's going on in Esther, and it happens in other portions of Scripture, but Esther's the only one where it marks the entire book, where it's God isn't blanked. It's not a, oh, I forgot to mention the divine, or that slipped my mind, or I just didn't think it was important. But it's gapped deliberately. It's literally a gap for the reader to fill in. It's del- in fact, the gap is created as a vacuum to draw out your assumptions, to draw out the readers filling in between the lines. It's kind of like the old, uh, you've heard that old quote or that old line, do not imagine a pink elephant right now. As soon as I say that, of course, we all think of the pink elephant. Similarly, the author here, I believe, and most agree on this, that he's deliberately gapping so that we are sort of forced to read between the lines. And we remember, we remember that This book was not written to an audience with no context. This was written to the Jewish people after the exile, some of them still in exile perhaps, who have the whole scriptures in their minds. They have a whole biblical understanding. They know Israel's story. And so in other words, they're primed to fill in the gaps. This isn't their first rodeo. But the, the gapping here assumes not just the knowledge of the Bible. I think Esther makes very clear connections to other books of the Bible by using similar verbiage, similar actions. Many have pointed out that there's a strong connection, as we'll see as we walk through this book, to the story of Joseph while he is in foreign land in Egypt. And Joseph, like Mordecai and Esther, climbs the ranks of the Egyptian hierarchy. There's clear links to Moses. It's not quite as tight as Joseph, but Moses living hidden in a foreign kingdom, Egypt again, to rescue his people. Or again, there are clear parallels to the book of Daniel where you have an exiled man, Daniel, who climbs the ranks through providence in the Babylonian kingdom. So the reader knows his reader, or sorry, the author knows his readers have this background. But it gets even more obvious that he's gapping. The author here is gapping throughout. 
in that not only is there no reference at all to Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, to the sacrificial system, to the law of Moses or the prophets. There's no mention of any of them. But the one time something religious is mentioned, it's secularized. In other words, it's sort of stripped of its explicit religiosity. Throughout Esther, multiple occasions, the Jews are called to fast, but it's explicit religious sort of twin to which it's always conjoined in Scripture. Prayer is not mentioned. The Jews fast, but it does not say that they pray. It's almost like Thomas Jefferson's edits of the New Testament where he cut out all the miracles because it didn't, didn't sit right with his modern tastes. He liked the teachings of Jesus, but the miracles struck him as legendary. It's, it's every single miracle is excised. Similarly in, in Esther, every moment where a, a religious expression of worship like prayer, it could be mentioned, it's not. It's, it's very deliberately, very conspicuously absent. And it draws the reader to fill in the gap. Well, they were fasting, but what else were they doing? Ironically, the whole point of this book, according to the author, is to explain the origin of a religious festival, the festival of Purim one of two post-exilic festivals of God's people. And yet no religious language is employed fascinatingly. Now, it's very important that Purim is the festival Esther's about. The word Purim comes from an Assyrian word, Peru, which means dice, the rolling of dice casting of lots, you know, the lottery. Esther is a grand lottery in which Esther wins the whole shebang. There are remarkable coincidences throughout the narrative. Vashti happens to be deposed and divested of her crown. Esther happens to find favor in the royal court and before the king himself. Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, happens to discover a plot against King Ahasuerus. And throughout, I'm going to actually use his Greek name, Xerxes, it's easier to say. (laughs) Xerxes I is the king that they're talking about here. Xerxes, for whatever reason, fails to honor Mordecai for uncovering this plot, but just so happens on a critical night to find himself sleepless and asks one of his attendants to read from the chronicles of the king and the attendant opens up the chronicles of the king and just happens to land on the section that recounts Mordecai's uncovering of this plot against Xerxes. And Xerxes happens to ask, well, what was done for him? Nothing, we never honored him. Haman, the enemy of God's people who hates Mordecai and the entire Jewish people, happens to enter into the king's court at the very moment, and he's entering the court to ask the king to execute Mordecai. At the very moment he walks in, King uh, Xerxes beats him to the punch and says, what should be done for a man who has so honored me? And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about him, so he lays it on thick. And of course, Xerxes is talking about Mordecai, the very man he was there to murder. Just so happens to come in at that very moment. 
The king just happens to walk in at the very time when Haman, discovering that all is turned against him, falls at Esther's feet and pleads with her. And he thinks he's attacking his queen and becomes all the more enraged. The very gallows Haman builds in front of his house to hang Mordecai. They become the gallows on which the king hangs Haman himself. It is a story of reversals. Haman, the highest official in the empire, trades places with Mordecai. Mordecai gets the highest honors. Haman gets Mordecai's gallows. And not just Mordecai and, 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 and Haman is the reversal. Or Vashti and Esther, this Jewish orphan, becomes the queen of the empire. But the whole Jewish people who were in danger of Holocaust being utterly wiped off the earth, it becomes the very moment of their empire-wide vindication. In fact, that's how the author puts it. Listen to what he says in chapter 9. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, that day, the fourteenth, the twelfth month, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, was the day that Haman uh, discerned by casting lots, by throwing the Purim. That very day, the author goes on to say, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Why this gapping? Why all this, this deliberate excising of any religious speech or language from Esther? Well, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no end of opinions on this. But here's my hypothesis, and as we go through Esther, we'll test and see if this stands. I believe the author is discipling us, the readers, to learn how to read the invisible hand of God among visible powers and threats, to discern even in the random roll of the die the ordering of God himself. Those powers that seem most threatening, most powerful, most visible to us are not the most significant agent in our world. The most significant agent in our world, I believe the author is teaching us, is the invisible God who stands behind all things and works through and in all things for not only his glory, but because his glory has been pinned to our salvation, the redemption of his people. Would you pray with me as we dive into chapter 1 here? Heavenly Father, we pray that we are able to read between the lines, not only of Esther here as the author would have us to fill in the gaps rightly, but Lord, we do the same in our own lives and the lives of your people today. We would learn to fill in the gaps, remembering that behind visible threats as well as visible allurements, there's a far more significant, far more important, far more determinative person 
and that is you, Lord. Would you be the most powerful agent here this morning? Would you speak clearly in the voice of a frail, sinful human? In the words of your inspired scriptures, we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you saw the 2006 film 300. Uh, it, is, it is not recommended uh, from up front. It was a very comic book version rendition of uh, Xerxes' war against the Greeks at Thermopylae, which um, particularly engaged the Spartans against the Persian hordes. And uh, there Xerxes the one makes an appearance. And if you saw the film, you know it's like the comic book. It's highly fictionalized and hyper-violent. And Xerxes appears there as a larger-than-life figure. I think he stands at seven feet something. And he's this godlike figure. Something similar is happening here with Xerxes' portrait in Esther chapter 1. Xerxes is presented here in a godlike fashion. God is absent. What is present is this powerful emperor of divine stature. The godlike glory of Xerxes is first noted in the, his far-flung empire. Notice in verse 1, he reigned from India to Ethiopia. Now, these aren't the modern descriptions. So India, think of Pakistan today. That was the, the, the eastern extent of the Persian Empire. And Ethiopia is not modern Ethiopia. Ethiopia in the ancient world is anything south of Egypt. So they extended into Egypt and beyond Egypt. This was the largest empire the world had ever known. Broken up into a number of satraps and 127 provinces, just to give you the full feel. He, he gives you the larger number. And he sat on his royal throne in Susa. And what is he doing in verse 4? He's displaying his greatness. Verse 4, showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness. These are words that are reserved in Scripture for the description of Yahweh, of God himself. And here Xerxes is showing off his divine-like glory. Now, in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon. In fact, it was typical for kings to be gods. That was true in Babylon. It was true in ancient Babylon before the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It was true in, in, in Egypt. It was true of the Assyrians. But interesting, not the Persians. Xerxes is a Persian emperor. But they were closely associated with the pantheon and the defenders of their high god. Ahura Mazda was the name of that god. And Mazda, not the car, the god, <laughs> had as the king his sort of earthly agent. The, the, the Persian Empire understood itself to be the earthly manifestation of the heavenly kingdom of God, of Mazda. And any opponents to the kingdom were demonic by definition. They were literally capital L lie, representatives of the lie. And Xerxes and Darius before him and kings that followed Xerxes were capital T truth, embodying the truth of the world.
And so you see his, he's manifesting the divine glory given to him by Mazda. In fact, the description of his royal guard in verse 6 is also striking. The white cotton curtains, the blue and the white and the linen and the purple and the silver and marble pillars and the gold and silver furniture. All that language is the same terminology used to describe the furniture and vessels and the, the setting of Solomon's temple for Yahweh. So in other words, Xerxes' house was like Yahweh's house. It was that majestic and glorious. He had God-like glory. That's the point. God is invisible, but divine glory is seen in Xerxes. He is the ruler of the known world, the only sovereign. The title he took for himself, Xerxes I, it wasn't unique to him. Darius, I think his father, the same title, was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He had God-like generosity. He feasted, did you, did you notice this? For 180 days. I don't know if you guys do the math. That's like half a year. A lot of scholars ask, well, what, if this was all the bureaucrats in the kingdom celebrating for half a year, who was running the empire? And of course, they probably weren't there the whole 180 days. It was more like a, a party that was standing and people came and went for, throughout the empire. But 180 days to throw on a feast, can you imagine the party budget? <laughs> this guy was filthy rich and secular historians of his day, like Herodotus, the Greek historian notes, the amount of money Xerxes spilled was astronomical. It had never been seen in the ancient world because no one had known anybody who was as rich as Xerxes was. So he had godlike generosity, divine munificence, money for you and you. He's like Oprah throwing out cars to everyone who walks through the door. Just incredible wealth and generosity. And then the wine. I mean, he then just invites not just, not just his officials, but then he opens up the party to the whole citadel of Susa. And on the screen, you'll see a map. Susa was split in half. This, this was, you know, you can't really see that. So <laughs> you'll have to take my word for it. There is, Susa was the capital city of the empire of Persia. But it was split in half by a canal. And you kind of had Susa proper. And that's where the hoi polloi live, the masses. But then you had, crossing the river, a raised territory. It was artificially raised because the king lived above you. <laughs> a citadel. And in that citadel lived all kinds of people. They had connections, I'm sure, to the king. But great and small, some were officials. Some were just lucky enough to live in the walled citadel within the king's, where the king's palace resided. So he invites the entire citadel. It's distinct from the whole city, but still a huge party crowd for seven days. And here's the decree he gives. No restraints on my wine. Let people drink from whatever golden cups they want as much as they want. There's no limit. That's what that means, no compulsion. There's no limits. Drink all the wine you want. Herodotus, among other historians, noted the Persians loved themselves some wine. It was the reputation of Persians that they loved to drink wine. And so the author's hamming it up here, how much wine was poured out. And you can imagine what this, this dude's wine cellar was like. 
I mean, he's an extraordinary seller. He was opened up to the crowds as much as you want. Seven days, drinking party. So, very generous king. <laughs> very godlike. But there's also seen here a God-sized conceit. I don't know if you guys noticed it when we read the passage, but when this text is read to, in Jewish synagogues to this day in celebrating Purim, people laugh because this is funny. And it's supposed to be funny. This is hilarious, as we'll see. So one of the things that's being displayed here is God, the God-sized conceit of Xerxes. Tom Holland, in his excellent book on the history of the impact of Christianity called Dominion. It's a great book. I recommend it. He writes this about Xerxes I. He says, power such as the great king wielded was something unprecedented in history. More than any other ruler before him, he was able by virtue of the sheer immensity of his territorial possessions to believe himself charged with a universal mission. The, world, the word he gave to his empire, Bumi in Persian, was synonymous with the world. The Persian empire was the civilized world. Everything outside of it, the demonic hordes. Beyond the physical apparatus, Holland writes, of the great king's vast empire, there shimmered a sublime and momentous conceit. Xerxes was the defender of all truth in the universe. He was the representative of the God. He ruled God's empire on earth as it is in heaven. And so students of the Hebrew Bible who were familiar with this, as they're seeing Xerxes' grandiose self-display of glory, they are anticipating a great fall. They read Proverbs, pride comes before the fall. Haman's going to do the same thing right before Haman's fall. He's going to go home to his wife and his friends and recount all of his splendor of his riches and all the honors he's gotten, why he's been advanced beyond everybody else, and he's superior, and I have ten sons, and I'm amazing. And then, right? So attuned readers to Esther, they're ready for a fall. They're ready for a turn, uh, especially those familiar with the book of Daniel. There's a great, there's a great uh, incident in Daniel's book where it's on the screen where Belshazzar throws a, a drinking party a lot like this one. And they're all celebrating and they break out the drinking vessels that were used in Yahweh's temple. And they start drinking wine from Yahweh's vessels. And they're, they're loving it. And everyone's having a good time. And then a disembodied hand appears on the wall and starts to write in, the, in plaster this obscure phrase. Everyone's freaking out. Belshazzar's knocking his knees together. Finally, no one can figure it out. Finally, someone says, get Daniel in here. He figures out mysteries. Daniel runs in and says, here's what it says, O king. You've been weighed. You've been found wanting. And this very night, your empire is going to be cut in half. And this is what he says to the emperor. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Those are the same words that are used here in verse 4. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. All the pomp and circumstance so lavishly described by the author here only serves to accentuate the great fall of the monarch that is coming. If the exaggerated portrayal of the Persian king in 300 is larger than life and terrifying, then in the portrait of this book of Xerxes is both larger than life and buffoonish. The great king of kings is disrobed in his self-display of grandeur and revealed at last to be the court fool of fools. What do I mean? His shame, as he puts on display of his glory, he displays his shame, ironically and humorously. First, he is drunk. <laughs> All right, so verse 10, right? On the seventh day, when the heart of the king became merry with wine. This is a biblical euphemism for he was drunk as a skunk. And again, readers of the Proverbs would have known this does not bode well. Lemuel's mother, the queen, said to her son, the future king, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and depriving justice of the oppressed, for the oppressed. And then what is he asked in his drunken state? You know what's going to be a good idea? Let's get my wife in front of all these drunken crowd to, like, ogle her. That sounds great. And so that's what he does. He sends seven eunuchs, these seven officials, to go retrieve her because that carries all the pomp. You need seven attendants to convey your word because you're that big of a deal. And she shockingly says no. So here's what's so funny, right? This is why everyone would have laughed when this was read. He's just, he is the sovereign from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. He rules the world, but he has no control over his own household. He has no authority in his own house, in his own home. And what's even funnier is the question he asks. It shows his lack of actual control over his own empire. When Vashti refuses, he absolutely loses control. In reducing Vashti to yet another trophy of his royal splendor, his trophy wife, it is the monarch's lack of sway in his own house that gets put on display to his public humiliation. Because he just said, hey, everybody, I'm going to bring my wife in here and you can see how beautiful she is. And then she doesn't come. So he looks like an idiot in front of everybody. And so then he's, he's humiliated, but even more humorous, then is, is his overreaction. Rather than demonstrating a poised sovereignty, it showcases his impotent rage and a pathetic male insecurity, as we'll see. So he comes and he says, in response to her refusal and his enragement, verse 13, the king says to the wise men, those who knew the times, those who knew policies and procedures and laws, he asks, well, what is the procedure in this case? as if there is a law for this. In other words, I don't know what to do. What does the book say? <laughs> and Memekin hilariously turns what is a private spat between a husband and wife into a matter of public policy so that it's not enough that the king's shame was publicized before the entire citadel. Now he's going to publicize it to the whole world. 
in every language, in every tongue, so everyone can read how Vashti refused to honor Xerxes' command. The solution is much worse than the problem. And just the paranoia of this, it's comical, right? If word gets out, we're going to have a feminist revolt. Every woman's going to shake her fist at her husband, right? Again, this was supposed to, the crowd laughs when they read this, right? Like every, there's just going to be this, like, because you're the, or, the, 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 the emperor of, 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 of the world. I mean, if your authority is overturned, the whole world will be thrown into chaos, Oh, great king, oh, great mighty one, right? And so they come up with this hilarious proposal so that every man can rule his household. Tell, let's tell the whole empire, and here's basically the, the subject, the, the, the gist of the command. She doesn't want to come to me? Fine. Then I don't want her to come to me ever again. <laughs> and then his shame is publicized to the whole empire. So your laughter is the correct response, right? It is exactly what the author wants us to do, to laugh at the folly of this great sovereign king. With the lavish descriptions of Xerxes and all of his imperial glory, the author almost breathlessly recounts his opulence, his generosity, but just beneath that impressive royal vestment, a shameful fragility and foolishness is exposed. In the very act of showing off his regal majesty, climaxing in the, the, the attempt to bear the beautiful Vashti before a vast, drunken entourage, it's Xerxes himself who is exposed. He then gullibly follows the absurd counsel of his advisors, and the great king now stands before us unveiled before his whole empire, a glorified idiot. The emperor clearly has no clothes. So, and this has always been the case. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, the rulers of this world have not understood the wisdom of God. If they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. How different is the Lord of glory? Jesus, the apparent fool and weakling, who was revealed to be the God-man, versus Xerxes, the apparent God-man, who's exposed in the end to be just a fool. What visible powers do you fear in this world? Maybe it's political powers, presidents, and their incompetency, or ex-presidents and their incompetency. Senators, lawmakers, Supreme Court justices, Maybe your fear is of nations. You're afraid of Russia. And they are fearful. What they're doing to Ukraine is lawless, violent, insane. Or China and its threats to Taiwan and the world. Maybe you're afraid of the United States. We're afraid of armies. We're afraid of terrorists. There are all kinds of visible threats. And then it's particularly disturbing. We laugh, but then we turn a little bit concerned. Our laughter can either lead us to the laughter of confidence, like Psalm 2. The nations rage, and they rally against God and His anointed. But the Lord in heaven does what? He laughs. 
He says, as for me, I've appointed my king. We can either, our laughter can lead us to that confidence or the nervous laughter of, this is the fool that's at the wheel of the empire? This moral idiot has the launch codes? That's terrifying. Unless we believe that far more significant than any emperor is the invisible God who orders all things. In our sardonic age, it's perhaps too easy for us to jump to the conclusion that our leaders are without their proverbial clothes, to point to them in our cynicism and say, look at these jokers. But the question really is, what about ourselves? And we talk about sheeple, you know, the sheeple following these. Well, what do you expect us to follow? You? Me? We are not only blind guides, we're blind following other blind guides. This reversal of pretending to know things and to be in control, only to be revealed as a fool, is not just reserved for emperors, but for all of us. Look on the screen from Romans chapter 1, Paul's diagnosis of the human condition. For although they, humanity, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. You might say exchanged the glory of the invisible God for images resembling mortal man, what seems powerful to us or birds and animals and creeping things. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We see it in Xerxes, but if we're honest, we see it in ourselves, haven't we? Listen, I don't know what battles you're you're fighting this morning. I don't know what threats are encroaching your life. It could be your marriage is a battleground. It could be like what's poorly modeled here with the king. It could be alcohol has too much control in your life. It could be like the king that you, what, what your eyes gaze upon in the objectification of other bodies. It could be that that has a stranglehold on you. What powerful agents are at work in your life that you fear, that you dread? And I want to remind you that the most important agent in your life this morning is not you, but the invisible God. He is the most important agent in your life this morning. And He is present and he is at work. And the Jesus who appeared to be a weakling when he was on earth, especially when he was crucified on that cross, is the sovereign Lord who reaches out to you now. Whatever threats constrain you, whatever threats, whatever, whatever burdens you carry, he, he is reaching out his hand to you right now 
and saying, I am stronger. I love you. There is freedom for you. There is redemption. I am here and I am at work. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our, in, a, in our times when you seem to be absent and certainly no mention is made of your name by those in power, you are not honored or revered. Nevertheless, you are the one person that is to be feared in this world and in this life. I thank you, Lord, that in fearing you, we have nothing to fear, not even your judgment, because through Jesus Christ, you offer us complete and total forgiveness of sins and utter salvation to the very end. Lord, help us now as we sing, as we pray, to continue to reach out to you, the only sovereign God.